At photographycourse.net, you'll be able to swap your expertise with other photographers, make light instead of wishing for it, expand your portfolio, and receive feedback from professionals, all of which will develop your artistic eye. Photographycourse.net offers an abundance of premium courses and challenges for participants at every stage of their journey, from technical settings for portrait photography, to landscape composition tricks, to how to start your own photography business, we have everything you need to start shooting confidently. You can work at a pace that suits you. Our 52-week project challenge will provide you with the educational resources, encouragement, and support that you need to take great photographs every week. You can join us at any time as our themes are evergreen. You can also start by shooting every day and learning something new with our 365 Days of Photography course. Led by an industry expert who has mentored over 10,000 students, this course will help you take your photography skills to the next level with daily, bite-sized videos. Throughout the process of learning, you'll have access to a community that will provide you with inspiration and motivation. Get encouragement from other photographers every single day. Our current limited time offer comes with a special discount code exclusive to the listeners of this podcast. Get 50% off your first year as a premium member. Claim this discount by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST. Come join photographycourse.net and capture more than just a moment. Hello everyone, my name is Taya and I'm the host of Great Big Photography World Podcast, where we interview notable photographers in the industry, give advice on a wide variety of topics, and provide tips for beginners and professionals alike. In this episode, I talked to landscape and travel photographer Ian Plant. Ian started out as a lawyer and eventually realized that he wanted to pursue photography full-time. Today, he's a successful photographer who hosts workshops, produces amazing photography content, and is very active in the community. We talk about his career transition, his wild adventures and countries around the world, and much more. Please enjoy. Hey, Ian. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Please introduce yourself to the listeners. Oh, thank you for having me on. This is a great honor and a privilege. I am Ian Plant. I am a professional photographer. I used to consider myself a professional landscape photographer, but I've kind of branched out and now I'm more of a jack of all trades. And I have been a professional photographer for 15 years now, full time, and a amateur photographer for another I don't know, 10 or 15 years before that. So I've been doing this a long time, I guess. it's gotten. It doesn't feel like it's been a long time. I still feel like I'm just a little kid, but uh, obviously the years are catching up with me. And uh, I, uh, I travel the world, or at least I used to travel the world, and hopefully soon I'll be traveling the world again. I'm looking for the most amazing places, people, and subjects to capture with my camera. And I just, I've always loved photography ever since I picked up my first camera. And uh, I'm so glad that I'm able to make it a full-time profession. And it is everything that I am. It's my complete and total life. It's, it's more than a profession. It's a lifestyle, I like to say. So it's just something that I love to do and do as much as I can. Ooh, I like that introduction very much. And I like that you called yourself a jack of all trades, because oftentimes as photographers, we feel like we have to stick to a specific label. Mm-hmm. But it's good that you don't just consider yourself a landscape photographer. You're giving yourself that freedom. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I really used to be a very purist landscape photographer. If there was any sign of human civilization in my in my photographs, I just wouldn't take it. Uh, but over time, I, I discovered that it wasn't 
really the landscape that I loved. It was just the, the process of photography. And I certainly love the landscape. I think having a connection with your subjects is important. But I realized I just loved the art of photography, the art of chasing the light and chasing these fleeting moments. And I, when I realized that, I realized that these amazing things, these moments, these these fleeting ephemeral events that are artistically relevant. They happen all the time everywhere with all sorts of different subjects. So I started branching out and doing, you know, first it was wildlife photography, but then I started branching out to travel photography. And at some point a few years ago, I actually started doing street photography, which was the complete 360 degree opposite of what I was trying to do when I first got into photography. And it was a kind of a crazy journey getting there, but I think it made me a better photographer. I think that if you really want to excel, even if you are a specialist, I think branching out and trying other types of photography, it forces you to see the world in a different way. And I think that when you become a crossover artist, it's just going to make whatever you do more strong and more impactful. I agree with you 100%. I mean, usually when somebody gets into photography, they don't usually know what they want exactly. And so they experiment with different genres. And I think that's one of the best ways to improve and empathize with other photographers and yeah, everything you said, I completely agree with you. What camera equipment do you use? Uh, so I am using Canon cameras, and uh, my lenses are uh, primarily Tamron lenses. Uh, it's a company I've worked with for a long time. I'm one of their ambassadors, uh, and I, I still have maybe a few Canon lenses kicking around with me as well. Uh, and, you know, it, it used to be that, uh, you know, it's funny when I tell people I'm a Canon shooter now, like I, it used to be that Canon and Nikon dominated the industry. And uh, those were the exciting choices to make. But now there's so many other camera and lens manufacturers out there. Uh, Canon has become kind of like the plain vanilla of uh, photography. So I, I no longer feel like, oh, yeah, I'm a Canon shooter. Like, that's important. Now I feel a little sheepish and embarrassed by it because there's a lot of people that are like, well, why haven't you switched to Sony or Nikon or something like that? So there's a lot of choices out there. And I, I don't think it really matters. I mean, all the systems out there are very good. It's really just a personal choice. Uh, what, you know, feels best for you. You know, I like to tell people that that equipment really isn't important. It's only important to the extent that your equipment should help you achieve your artistic vision. It shouldn't stand in the way of your vision. And so depending on what your artistic vision is, you just make sure you get the equipment that will help you best achieve that vision. That's right. Yeah. And I feel like camera users, sometimes we get a little bit aggressive. We should just all get along. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. The point is that we're all creating art and that should be enough. That should be yeah. a foundation for us to all get along. But by the way, I'm a Canon user myself. So high five. <laughs> <laughs> high five right back at you. So I was just doing a workshop in Badlands National Park and one of my clients, uh, she had a, you know, she had a a real digital camera, but she also had her new iPhone with her. And she would sometimes take pictures with the camera, but more often than not, she was just taking out the iPhone and snapping these these shots. And they were amazing. I mean, they were every bit as good as the, the shots I was getting off of my very professional digital camera. And uh, I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, wow, I'm getting ready to just sell it all, just go out and buy that, that new phone and use that for my photography from now on because the phones are getting better and better. But, you know, the point really that I'm driving at here is anyone can make amazing art with any type of camera. It can be an old fashioned pinhole camera. Uh, you know, you could still make amazing art with it. So, you know, don't get bogged down with the equipment is what I tell people all the time. Just buy the equipment that works for you and focus on your artistic vision. And that's all that you really need to do. I like that advice very much. And I agree with it. 
You were a lawyer before you became a professional photographer. I can imagine that the process wasn't as easy as just quitting your job and picking up a camera, right? What was the transition like for you? <laughs> well, it, it kind of was like that. Really? Um, you know, it's it's difficult to me to, for me to talk about the old lawyer days. It's It's rather embarrassing. All I can say is that I was young, I was naive, and I needed the money. And uh, that's why I became a lawyer. Uh, I actually would have been perfectly happy as a lawyer, uh, but I bought my first camera. It was my first year of law school. I took a summer job with a New York City law firm, and it was the first time in my life that I really had any extra money as a result. So I decided to buy a camera, just, you know, something I thought might be fun. And I wanted to take it with me. I, I was very much into hiking and backpacking and rock climbing and things like that. So I thought, oh, it'd be nice to have a camera along with me uh, to record my adventures. Well, uh, big mistake. I was hooked right away on the art of photography. And I realized then I'd made a huge $100,000 mistake. Uh, that's the price of my law school education. Uh, so I knew very quickly that photography was what, was what I wanted to do. It just completely hooked me. It, I was obsessed with it. But I also knew that it was going to be a while before I could do that because I had to pay off the cost of my legal education. So I actually worked eight years as a lawyer and I was very open and honest with it when I went to I went to a firm in Washington, D.C. And I was very open and honest with it with all the other lawyers there. I told them I don't want to do this for a living. I'm just going to work here long enough to pay off my law school debt. And then I'm going to be a professional photographer. And they all thought it was cute that I said that they just kind of laughed at me. They didn't really believe me. And so, in fact, I worked eight years as a lawyer, but the whole time I was miserable. It, it was simply because I wasn't out taking pictures. And it finally got to a point where I couldn't take it anymore. And so I just up and quit. <laughs> so it kind of happened like like you uh, described in the beginning. Uh, it was just a point where I realized I can't do this anymore. Uh, I really want to be doing the photography. And so I just put in my two weeks notice and then I just became a professional photographer. And that's how that's how it happened. <laughs> wow, that's really fascinating. And there are so many people in the world who struggle with that, I know, because they have this creative side to them that they're not really nurturing. And then they have full-time jobs they need to take care of. They have families. They have this, you know, loans they need to pay off. It's, mm -hmm. it's horrible. So what was that like for you, quitting your job and then actually starting to pursue photography? I imagine it was fulfilling, but also a little bit stressful, right? Yeah, I guess it was. I guess it, it should have been stressful and it should have been scary. Um, but I just kind of decided if I'm going to do it, I'm going to go for it 100 percent and just make it work. And uh, it was challenging. I mean, it was very difficult in the beginning, especially when I started being a full time pro. The industry was making this huge transition uh, from film to digital and the Internet was becoming very popular. So before I quit, photographers made their living selling their photos. They, you know, actually made 100% of their income from just selling their photos to photo stock agencies, to magazines and calendar companies. And then after I quit, as soon as digital cameras became popular and the internet made it easy for uh, people who wanted to buy photos to search for photos and find them often for free, uh, the industry completely changed. And now, you know, especially with uh, landscape and nature photographers, most are not really making their living directly selling their photos. They're making their living doing photo workshops and tours, educational services, things like that. So there was this upheaval in the industry uh, which uh, made things a bit more complicated, though they did create some opportunities as well. And so I should have been terrified. And there were moments 
when I realized that that I that I had done this, that I had completely untethered myself from any safety net, uh, and that I was. Uh, trying to make a living in this very difficult, increasingly competitive business. And so like maybe wake up in the middle of the night with a, a moment of terror and night sweat. Uh, but uh, uh, those moments would quickly pass and I just kept on going. Now, I don't recommend everyone do this. I don't re recommend that everyone just quits their job and jumps in to become a full-time pro because if we did that, uh, we would find that no one's like doing anything that's actually useful for society. Uh, mm. But <laughs> for those who are like me, who who really find it to be their calling, I guess, and who might not have, like, I didn't have any kids or anything like that. So it, it made it easier for me to just be irresponsible, I guess. Uh, so for people who are like that, I definitely recommend uh, the best way forward is just to dive into it uh, because it's hard to do it part-time. I tried doing the part-time thing for a while, and it's really, really difficult to, to do what you need to do to find the time that you need to do to make a living out of photography if you're just doing it part-time. I didn't start making enough money to make a living from photography until I actually went full-time. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, it's really good advice. I mean, it's it's amazing to have a calling in the first place. So if you have to deal with all the, the obstacles, then you just have to deal with them, right? That's life. So as long as mm -hmm. you have a calling as a photographer, then you should just persevere and be resilient and also smart at the same time. <laughs> you, you need a business plan. You, you, you know, you, I, I tell people a lot of times I, I meet young photographers who have just taken the plunge and gone full time. And they're very focused on the photographs that they're making. And, you know, what, you know, should I be doing this or that? What's going to be more popular? And I tell them, don't worry about the photos. Worry about your business plan. Come up with a business model that you can grow and you will find the audience to match the photos that you're taking. And so that's really what you've got to be focused on. Yeah, because when it comes to the full-time profession of any genre in photography, you do need to have a business plan because, yeah, you're right. We do. As photographers focus so much on the artistic side, and that's very important. But if you want mm -hmm. to make a business out of it, you have to be wise. You have to have connections. And yeah, it's, it's a whole system. Yes. And you have to be flexible because the this industry is constantly changing and ways that photographers make money are constantly changing. That's right. That's right. Well, I'm curious to know. So you quit your job. Hooray. You're very excited, right, to pursue photography. What was the first thing you did? <laughs> <laughs> um, the first thing I did, oh, that, you know, that's a good question. I wish I, I had to think about that for a moment. Um, I probably, the first thing that I did is I probably went out and just took lots of pictures for a long period of time. I just disappeared into the wilderness, <laughs> <laughs> which, um, on the one hand was, was very satisfying. On the other hand, it's not the thing that you should be doing when you're trying to launch a new business. Uh, so of course we, we always have the attention as photographers, we, we build our business based on the photos that we're taking. But the process of making photos is the, probably the most costly thing we have in our businesses. So a good friend of mine used to say, you make money at home, you lose money when you're out in the field taking photos. Uh, and so there's always that tension. You need to go out in the field to make those photos. Uh, and sometimes you have to travel to really interesting or exotic and expensive places to do that, to, to raise your stature and to get noticed by people. Uh, but then you need to budget time to go back to the home office and figure out how to make money from all this you know, interesting photography that you just did. So, yeah, I, I probably went out and had a, a bit of a binge of photography. And then I got back and sort of sobered up and decided, OK, now it's time to focus on how am I going to make money from this? Interesting. And so <laughs> I'm asking another question, trying to pry here. What was the first business related decision you made, if, if it's not a secret? 
Oh, no, not a secret at all. So actually, when I started off, I went into business with a few other photographers. We had a uh, a, a publishing company. We self-published books and calendars featuring our photography. And so this was my first effort to kind of go direct to the consumer. Um, and so we worked together for several years and um, we published a lot of books. And uh, basically, the publishing industry kind of has been challenged by the rise of the internet uh, as well. And so eventually just kind of came to the conclusion that paper publishing was was too costly and just not profitable enough. We were spending a lot of time acting as salespeople, trying to call like bookstores and get our books placed on the shelves there. And it was a it was a lot of work and we just didn't you know, just didn't feel like there was that much of a reward. Personally, I wanted to switch over into eBooks and eventually videos and things like that. So that uh, that lasted for a few years before we all had to kind of reinvent our business models and try some different things. But that was how I made my living in the first few years was as a self-publisher primarily. And then I would also do a fair amount of magazine submissions. Uh, magazines are another thing that they've kind of, along with the rest of the publishing industry, the magazines have mostly disappeared now. A lot of the magazines I used to contribute to are gone or are just barely alive. And so that industry has, that way of making money for photographers has kind of dried up a lot. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. And but now you have a really successful business, and I've noticed you have all these resources out there, from you know, videos on your YouTube channel to uh, workshops that you host in different places. What advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out and wants to have a successful business like yours? Well, I definitely think that the key thing is to build an audience, and there's a lot of different ways to build an audience. Uh, social media is definitely a way where you can connect with people, though social media is hard. It's not very targeted. Uh, you know, I've, certainly you can have very big followings on social media. Like my Facebook page has got almost a quarter million followers, but I suspect that most of those followers aren't actually photographers. Uh, it's probably just random people who came across my Facebook page, liked a few of the, the pretty pictures and follow it. And so social media, you can build up very large followings and you can figure out a way to make money from that. But I think it, it, it's a little difficult to target the people who might actually be interested in the products or services that you're offering. So for me, a lot of my income is from educational services. So I've got my instructional eBooks and videos, and to a lesser extent, I do workshops, photo workshops. And so the audience I wanna reach uh, is, you know, photography enthusiasts who have time and money, uh, who want to learn more about the art of photography. And so that's actually a pretty specific demographic. It's probably, you know, a demographic that skews uh, 50 years old or older, a lot of retirees, for example. So social media wasn't exactly the best way to reach those people. So I actually spent a lot of time building up a in-person mailing list. So I do a lot of presentations with photo clubs and at photo conferences, and I get people to sign up to my mailing list. And I really put an effort effort on growing that mailing list. So these are people who definitely want to learn more about me and what I'm doing and the products I'm offering. And so finding a way to actually get people on a subscriber mailing list is the best way you can grow your business and uh, the best way that you can make money from the audience, from the followers that you have. It's much more targeted than social media. So I spend a lot of time trying to get my social media followers to sign up for my mailing list. So growing that mailing list 
it was the, the best thing I ever did for my business. And I think it's the key thing for any business going forward. It's, it's a little old fashioned, I know, because it's an email subscriber list. Uh, but I think it's much more direct and effective than anything you can do on social media. Wow, I've never thought of it that way. Thank you for sharing that. Because usually when you think about getting uh, people to like your work or getting them to buy your work, you think of social platforms like Instagram and Facebook, right? But as mm -hmm. you said, the mailing list is it's more personal. It's like a personal relationship between yourself and the person who's subscribed to to you. So yeah, it's it's important for every photographer who has a business to keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you can cut through all the noise on social media. I mean, everyone's on social media. And so, you know, when you post something, your followers don't always see it uh, because it's got to go through the algorithm that Instagram or, or Facebook have. And so with um, email subscriber list, when you send out that email, anyone who sees the email and wants to read it has a chance to. That's right. Yeah, it's just, just direct. So yeah, I guess the key is to, as you said, have a target audience, know who you want to work with, and then have that mailing list and also just reach out to people who have a personal relationship with them. That's That's a cool perspective. I've never thought of that. Thank you. It's an old person perspective. <laughs> this is kind of old fashioned. <laughs> no, I think it's very effective. I actually heard some businesses outside of photography talking about it. I just never thought of applying it to photography. Mm -hmm. There's a quote by you on your website that says, a photograph should say as much about the artist as it does about the subject. That's a very interesting statement and one that I agree with. Could you elaborate on that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And thanks for asking about that. I'm uh, I'm glad that uh, someone's actually noticing that I put that up. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, basically what I mean by that is that I think to be effective as a photographer, I mean, I think you have to be an artist. And to be an artist, you can't just point your camera at interesting things and trigger the shutter. Uh, you don't want to be taking photos of things that you see. You want to be making photos. And that's an artistic process where you're putting your own personal artistic vision into the photograph. So, uh, like, I think it's the difference between making a documentary record of the things that you see around you and striving to make an artistic composition. So I, you know, I work very hard to kind of, I don't know that I'm trying to develop a unique style, but I work very hard to work with the style that I have and to push it to its limits. And I'm very focused on artistic composition. I'm very focused on ephemeral events, uh, you know, the magic of the moment, uh, waiting for that, that perfect sky at sunset over a landscape composition of my choosing. And so I'm always striving to find a way to inject my personal vision into the photographs that I make so that the photograph is telling as much of my story as it is the story of my subject. Mm -hmm. I'm very intrigued by that approach. And you seem to have a very good grasp of composition in general. So my next question is related to that. It's a very important part of your work, and you've written a whole book about it, actually, right? I am wondering, if someone wants to improve their knowledge of composition, what are three things they should know before they start? Um, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, and, you know, the hard part is to get me to stop at just three things. Uh, I, I, you know, I did write a whole book, and now it's a it's a ebook video course. It's the ultimate photography composition course that is available on my photo education website, ShutterMonkeys.com. And... Um, I spent a lot of time working on it. I, you know, the funny thing is, as I started writing the ebook many, many years ago, and I thought, okay, this will just be a short ebook on composition. I'll talk about all the, you know, the standard stuff, rule of thirds and stuff like that. And as I was doing some research for the book, 
I realized just how bad so many of these composition books that are out there already are. I mean, it just was, I was shocked at, at how little understanding a lot of the, these books were offering. And so the deeper I dove into it, the more I thought about it, the, the better my understanding got. So my understanding of composition in part grew from this desire to help other people learn composition. And I went down deep into a rabbit hole on composition. Uh, so my, my course is very thorough. But I think that the key three things that people need to understand when they're thinking about visual design, about the composition of their photographs is, first of all, they have to learn how to think in the abstract. They can't look at their subject and think mountain, tree, person. Uh, you have to learn to for lack of a better way of putting it, deconstruct the world around you into all of the constituent shapes and colors. So instead of a tree, you have a triangle, you know, same thing with a mountain. Instead of a river, you might have an S-curve. Uh, you, you know, you might think of something not in terms of its shape, but maybe its color or how bright or dark it is. And so you learn to, to see the world in all of these different ways. And you know, composition really is taking all these abstract shapes and colors and figuring out a way to arrange them in a pleasing and compelling way for the viewer. So learning to think in the abstract is number one. Number two is learning that, and this, this grows from learning to think in the abstract, is learning that anything, anything can make an interesting composition or a compositional element. Uh, and so you stop looking for just the most beautiful uh, iconic things that you can possibly photograph. You know, I, I often point people to the work of Henri Cartier-Bresson. And, um, you know, he's a very famous street photographer and his work is brilliant. And he didn't walk around looking for the most gorgeous Italian supermodels to photograph. He was photographing the everyday, the mundane, even the ugly. Uh, sometimes it was people, other times it was just objects. But he, he was seeing all these abstract compositional shapes and figuring out how to relate them together in his photographs. And it's really quite stunning what he was able to do with the sorts of things that most people would overlook. And so that is very, very critical to my work is, you know, a lot of times I'm leading a workshop and people will, you know, I'll say, hey, this is a good composition and I'll get down on the ground and I'll be photographing something in the foreground that is just the small thing, like maybe some erosion in mud or something like that. And you can see how when they see me doing that, they're like, oh, I get it now. I understand <laughs> what it is you're driving at. Uh, and that leads to the final point about composition is that if you can see it, you can do it. And, I, you know, I think that's the key thing. You study composition. You learn you learn by looking at your own photos and thinking about what works and what doesn't work. You learn by looking at other people's photos. You learn by looking at other forms of art. I love looking at, at paintings. Uh, I, you know, I find the real masters of composition were the great masters of painting. And I think you can learn a lot from looking at that work. Uh, and you learn from people talking about composition. And if you can see something, if you see something you like, and maybe someone explains why they think that composition is good, and you say, oh, I see what that photographer is doing now. I get it. If you can see that, you can do it. It may take some practice. But as long as you can understand when someone explains it to you, or if you can figure it out on your own, there's nothing, nothing that will stop you from eventually using that compositional technique uh, when you have a scene or a subject that works with that technique. Right, because then you develop an intuition for it, right? Absolutely. And, you know, this is... I should have warned you. I, I did warn you. You can't just ask me about composition and say, you can only talk about three things. I'm going to go on to a fourth thing, but then I promise I will stop. Uh, the fourth thing is, is there are no rules of composition. 
there are only tools and techniques that work in some circumstances and, and don't work in others. And so as you were saying, you develop this intuition, I guess the way I would phrase it is that you develop a toolkit of different compositional techniques that you can mix and match and use when the scene or subject calls for it. And once you start developing this toolkit, once you break free from this idea that there are specific rules that you must follow, uh, you'll find that you can make anything work if you do it right and if the situation calls for it. You can break those so-called rules of composition and you can make amazing, brilliant compositions that defy convention. As long as you keep in mind all the four things I've just said. Photographycourse.net is a place where you can find an abundance of photography inspiration in different forms like premium courses, articles, video tutorials, editing resources, and much more. We have a thriving community where you can meet new people, receive constructive criticism, and discover new ideas every single day. Here is a message from one of our top community members, Robert Morton. Hi, my name is Rob. I specialise in wildlife photography and landscape photography. I'm a member of photographycourse.net online community. I like the community because you get some fantastic ideas and some great feedback. So take your photography to the next level by clicking the link in the description. That's what I did and I haven't looked back. If you want to join our online community, go to photographycourse.net and enter the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member. That's all very, very valuable advice that I've actually never heard, so thank you for sharing it. And I will definitely think about composition in a different way now, because as a portrait photographer, I don't know, and I've never really thought about composition. I felt like it applied more to landscape photography, but I feel like it applies to every genre, right? So it's, uh, yeah, it's very eye-opening. Yeah, I mean, I think that as a portrait photographer, if you start taking like a wider view of the subject um, and maybe trying to include a little bit more when you're photographing the subject. I know a lot of portrait photography is is just sort of getting a tight shot on the person's head. I mean, that's the literal definition, I guess, of portrait photography. But some of the most effective portraits I've seen have been, I don't know, maybe a bit more environmental. You know, they're not just showing a tight shot of the subject's head against the background or something like that. They're showing maybe the person in their home office or something like that. And they get creative with all of the other visual elements that are present in that scene. And they they craft uh, a wonderful composition of working with everything there. And it tells more of a story about the subject. So I think there's there's definitely opportunities to get creative with composition, no matter what you're photographing. Even with simple photographs, you can still get creative with composition. That's right. It's interesting. When you were talking about abstract and looking at, at, at landscape photography from an abstract point of view and seeing mm. shapes and colors, I immediately thought about graphic designers. And that's basically how they approach graphic design and just designing in general. So it's very, very interesting to look through that photography through that lens. Absolutely. I think you're 100% right. You don't edit your photographs very much, I've noticed. I like the raw and natural feeling in all of your pictures. What's something that every photographer should know when trying to capture something authentically? Uh, yeah, I think that um, I guess I, I would say the way I would describe it is, I'm, uh, you know, I grew up photographically speaking, shooting color slide film. And so this idea of post-processing was a little bit foreign to me at first because there was no such thing in those days. You triggered the shutter, you sent the film to a lab that processed it to a certain standard. And I, you know, I think a lot of uh, photographers coming up in the digital age 
uh, have learned that there's a lot of things you can do in the photo editing uh, process that can allow you to change the way the photo looks in very dramatic ways. I mean, there's programs out there that allow you with a press of a button to instantly change the sky, for example, things like that. And so I think uh, as a result, a lot of photographers uh, don't really learn how light works uh, in the same way that film photographers had to. And so I, I definitely think that learning how light works is is critically important. I mean, because that's the basis of photography. Without light, there is no photography. So, you know, it's a good idea, uh, even if you're doing some of this, you know, fancy digital manipulation, to really make an effort to get out there and learn how light works. And that's a big focus of my landscape photography in particular, is a lot of times I go out searching for a really interesting composition. And once I find it, then I need to get the right sky and the right uh, light and color on the landscape and in the sky to bring it all together. And so I'm often uh, out there at the same place over and over and over again, waiting for that perfect moment to, to bring my creative vision to life. And the only way you can really make that happen is if you understand how light works, how weather works, if you're shooting outdoors, uh, really just having a very strong, solid understanding of all that stuff uh, to get the, the moment that you want. And I think it's also true about capturing the magic of the moment. You know, one great thing about photography, what makes it different from other forms of art is that it captures that fleeting moment and freezes it forever. So it's, it's different from a video or different from a painting where the painter can just, they can capture a moment with their painting, I suppose. Uh, but they're really, you know, they can do anything they want with a painting, but a photograph is tethered to, to that reality and capturing that, that perfect moment, you really have to know your subject. So you really, with landscape, it might be, you know, knowing the weather with wildlife, it's understanding how that animal acts, its behaviors, the poses that it might strike because you're waiting for that perfect moment. So, you know, with people, it's the same thing. You know, with people, you're trying to draw something out from them that tells a story. And so you need to establish a relationship with them, a rapport to, I'm sure as a portrait photographer, this is something that you think about a lot. You're trying to figure out a way to reveal something about the person in the photograph that you're taking. So it takes time to really learn your subject to make that happen. So if you want to have that authentic connection, you need to learn how to master light and how to master the moment. That's right. I agree with you. And I read in another interview with you where you mentioned something similar, where you talked about the magic of the moment. And I remember that really stood out to me because it reminded me of how exciting photography is because yes, there's the editing process and the color correction, but prior to all of that, you have the actual photography process where you have to be patient and persistent and you have to find the right moment. You don't know whether you'll find it or not. And if you don't, you have to try again. And I just think it's such a wonderful, magical process in general. Yeah, I, and I love it. I mean, that that's what I love about being a photographer. I guess if I was any good at any other form of art, uh, maybe I would be a painter. But, you know, for me, photography is amazing because when you capture a photo of something amazing, you were there in the moment experiencing it. And I, you know, to me, you know, being out there when there's the most epic sunset sky you've ever seen in your life is is thrilling. Being there for the moment when, you know, two bull elephants suddenly start crashing into each other and fighting. Uh, like you just or being there for the moment when when you're exploring a foreign country and there you're taking a photograph of someone and they just have, uh, you know, they spontaneously laugh at something and you, you capture that candid moment with your camera. I mean, these are great moments. This is what I live for. And uh, to me, it's just so much better to, to be in the moment and experience the moment than to manufacture it later on the computer. So that's why I do this. Um, there's certainly, you know, there's a lot of people who are 
engaged more in this sort of digital uh, computer art uh, with their photography. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's to me, it's just a very, it's a different form of art. It's something different. But for me, uh, I love the experience and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Absolutely. Yeah. To each their own. And as long as you love what you do, then that's, that's enough. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good point. Uh, you mentioned taking photographs of wild animals and what came to mind was this gorgeous shot you, you have in your portfolio of uh, a lion and it's looking straight at the camera. It has blood on its mouth and that stood out to me. I just, it looked so unreal and I mean that in a positive way. <laughs> how could you have even captured that? And in general, I feel like it's so diff difficult to capture photos of anyone, like even pets, but especially wild animals. I'm curious to know how much time you put into photographing them and where you go to find them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I always tell people, put in as much time as you can with whatever your subject is. You know, people will ask me, how long do you stay in an area to get a good photograph? And I don't even hesitate. I say two weeks. And I don't always go to the same place for two weeks. But I do try to build in that amount of time because it takes a while to really, you know, learn how the local light works and the weather and to learn how how your subject works and to get into the rhythms of your subject. And it also, a lot of photography is just pure luck. I mean, really, I feel like our job as photographers is, is to translate luck. We wait for those lucky moments. And then through all of our experience and training, when that moment occurs, even if it's fleeting, we have to react instinctively to find a way to take that lucky moment and translate it to the viewer in a final photograph. And so that, I think, is, is really what explains that shot with the lion. So that shot was taken in Kenya and I was there for a two week trip and I've made multiple trips there. So, you know, two weeks is really not quite long enough. A lot of times you have to go back to an area over and over again. And I would spend a lot of time waiting for those really interesting moments when the big cats would make a kill. And, you know, for the most part, what I was looking for was the action shot of the kill happening. And it's very, very difficult to get those shots, by the way, uh, because, you know, uh, Kenya is a really big place. You know, you're in an area and, you know, the, you just have millions of animals, wildebeest and big cats and whatever. And they're spread out over this large area. And you're doing your very best to try to find these rare moments where there's something exciting going on. And so there was a chase one morning. Uh, two lionesses killed a wildebeest. And so we saw the chase, but we weren't able to get to it in time for making the photograph of the chase itself, and which is just often the case. You know, you're just not in the right place at the right time. And then the lionesses started to eat the wildebeest. Normally, I don't stick around for that. It's it's a bloody, gory event. <laughs> uh, but uh, we didn't have anything else to do. So we just decided to stay and, and watch. And I, I noticed that the lionesses, they would look up every now and then. And their faces would just be covered with blood and it was bright red. And so, you know, once again, thinking in the abstract, I was thinking about how striking that color was and how it could really uh, add a, a really strong color element to the final photo if I could get it just right. And they would always look up at me in the safari vehicle just briefly. And so I knew that I had to act fast. So I basically figured out what focal length I needed, you know, all my settings. And then I just sat there and waited, waited for that moment. And I probably got two or three of those moments where one of the lionesses would look up and I'd have to act quickly and snap the shutter. And I was lucky enough to get that one moment where she was, her head was still down, but her eyes were looking up at me. So she's got this intense glaring stare and she had that bright red on her face. And that was the moment I was waiting for. And I executed in that split second that I had, and I was lucky to get the shot. 
Wow, that's a cool story. It must have been, well, first of all, scary, gory, but then ultimately thrilling <laughs> for you to finally get that shot, yeah? <laughs> yeah, very, very happy with the shot. I, I didn't like watching what was going on, but I was very happy with the shot. <laughs> oh, the life of a photographer. <laughs> I remember sharing this photograph with my coworkers because I was showing them um, your portfolio and I, I, was, I wanted to put emphasis on that picture because it stood out to me the most. And I remember everybody's reaction was like, whoa. <laughs> Everyone was so shocked because it's just, it really stands out and what an incredible experience. And you've been to so many places around the world. You've had so many fascinating experiences as a photographer. Do you have a special memory that stands out the most to you? Oh, yeah. I've got a lot of special memories. You know, certainly working with the big cats in Kenya, that moment when that lioness looked right at me and I could tell what she was thinking. She was thinking dessert. Uh, <laughs> so that was that moment has has stayed with me for a long time. I've got a few other moments that really stood out. I visited the Congo a few years back and I went up to the top of a volcano there in Virunga National Park called uh, I'm going to murder this name as well. Niragongo volcano. And uh I spent the night up there. There's a lava lake that is permanent uh, below the crater rim. And so I camped on the crater rim for the evening. And it was just amazing. You get up and you go to the crater rim and you look down and there's this giant lava lake churning down below. And it was one of the most memorable experiences of my life. Uh, And also with wildlife, some of the the greatest uh, memories I have are working with polar bears up in Alaska uh, working with Sumatran orangutans in Indonesia, that's that was a magical experience there as well. They're beautiful animals. And then probably my, my personal favorite would be trekking with mountain gorillas. And I've trekked with mountain gorillas in Rwanda, U, uh, Uganda, and Congo, the three countries where they, they're actually present. And uh, each time I go, it's just one of the most magical experiences you can imagine. These are, are just beautiful animals. They're huge. They're powerful. But at the same time, they're so gentle. And uh, there's so much in them that that we as, as humans can recognize. Uh, so they're very similar, but they're so different in many other ways. And it's just one of the most amazing experiences you can ever have. And so I would recommend everyone do it at some point in their life if they can. Wow. Amazing. Those are such incredible stories. They must have been just so surreal. It must have been surreal to just be in those moments and, and know that you were able to, to capture them as a photographer as well. Yeah, you know, you could you can see it on like those Planet Earth series on the Discovery Channel, but actually being out there and living those moments is amazing. And you know, one experience with the mountain grill in particular stands out. Uh, sometimes you actually get pretty close to the grill as you're supposed to keep a certain distance away, but the gorillas don't know the rules and sometimes they come closer and you can't really move around that easily. So the guides say, you know, if the gorilla comes close, just uh, be submissive, look down, don't do anything threatening, don't move uh, and just wait for the gorilla to go past you. And at one point I was photographing this, this gorgeous silverback gorilla, this massive male gorilla. And he decided he was going to walk past me and my guide. And he was so close. I mean, passed like a foot away from us. And I had put my camera down and put my eyes down. I could smell the gorilla as he was going by. He was that close. And then the gorilla stopped, turned around and faced us, and then pushed my guide over on the ground, which happens. They'll tell you, the guides will say, sometimes the gorillas will just give you a friendly shove, as they, they say it. They're just showing their dominance. And so, you know, the guide wasn't hurt. He, he was laughing at the experience. It's happened to him before. And uh, it was just amazing because the gorilla just looked at him, just casually shoved him over on the ground and then then moved on. And the whole time I'm thinking, man, that could have been me. I almost got pushed over by a silverback gorilla. <laughs> 
Oh, wow. That would have been quite a story. I mean, this is already quite an interesting story, but imagine if it was you. <laughs> wow. That's yeah, amazing. I wanted to have that on my resume, pushed over by a silverback. <laughs> Actually, I, I did have a silverback uh, throw a stick at me once. So that's the closest I came to that sort of thing. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's really interesting. I mean, working with people is one thing and working with landscapes is something entirely different. But with animals, they're so unpredictable. And yes. they have no understanding of rules, as you just said previously. Mm. And they are just so innocent in some ways and <laughs> very assertive sometimes. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, I can imagine that it's really cool to be able to work with these wild animals and, and just be able to experience life through their eyes in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm I'm making a joke out of it, but yes, wild animals are unpredictable. When you're photographing them, you're in their world and you have to abide by their rules. And so, you know, you do what you need to do to make sure that you're not uh, harassing or threatening the animal or anything like that. And uh, you know, so it was it was a cool experience, but uh, it was also you know something that you're you're actually hoping won't happen. You don't want to be that close to the animals because it's not necessarily good for them or good for you. Uh, so it, it does happen. Like even with the best laid plans. And sometimes the animals come too close and you you don't really have an opportunity to retreat in a way that's safe for either you or the animal. Because, you know, if you move too quickly, you can trigger a response from them. Uh, so, you know, I, I tell people avoid those situations as much as you can. But if they do happen, it's OK to enjoy them. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's a glass half full kind of situation, right? <laughs> <laughs> You frequently contribute to leading photography magazines such as Outdoor Photographer and Popular Photography. Do you have any tips for landscape photographers who want to get featured in magazines like that? Uh, yes. Build a time machine and go back in time. And that's the best way to get featured. <laughs> so Popular Photography uh, was the biggest photography magazine in the world. I used to do a lot of articles with them, but they went out of business several years ago. I know that Outdoor Photography... Outdoor Photographer Magazine is still going. Um, I used to contribute to them quite a bit. I, in recent years, I've really been working with Landscape Photography Magazine as a as a regular columnist mm -hmm. uh, with them. Uh, but a lot of the magazines that used to exist are, are gone. Some of those publications have now moved online, like Landscape Photography Magazine. Um, so, you know, the best way to get published by these magazines, uh, these e-zines, I guess, is what most of them are these days, is, you know, find out the contact information and put together a pitch letter, basically. And so what a pitch letter is, is in essence, an introduction to you and your work, but also you accompany it with an article idea. And I, you know, I, I find that your best chance of getting published by a photography magazine is to not just show them your photos, but to pitch it along with an article. They're, they're always looking for good written content. And that's how I got started. I, di I didn't just send them uh, a bunch of my photos and say, hey, would you like to publish my photos sometime? They get tons of those submissions. I sent them a submission saying, here are some of my photos. But by the way, here's a, an idea for an article that I'd like to run by you. And if it's if you do the research, if you know what sorts of articles they publish and you give them an idea that is uh, something that they like to publish, but hasn't been recently published before so that you're not just offering them something that they published, you know, last month, for example, uh, chances are uh, you will get an opportunity to write an article for that magazine. And that's how you get your foot in the door and start the relationship. Mm, yeah, that's really good advice. Thank you. Because when we think about magazines, we often think about just sharing pictures. But yeah, it's also about articles and telling stories by writing something. That's also a very valuable set of skills to have as well when it comes to, to working with magazines. 
Yeah, they have more pictures than they need, uh, but they don't have enough written content. So mm-hmm. simple supply and demand. Go after the area that they that they need the most. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's very good advice. I'm curious to know, since you have a, a background in, in law, do you ever use that knowledge in your photography? <laughs> Probably only when I get harassed by a park ranger or something. Uh, and I know that they're not actually enforcing the proper rules. I might just get a little lawyerly with them. Uh, I, you know, I, I can't say that that background has been completely irrelevant because I think a lot of the skills that I learned, a lot of the business skills that I learned uh, during my days as a lawyer have been very helpful. My writing skills come from my many years as a lawyer as well. Uh, I don't think I have much of an opportunity to use my my pure legal skills, uh, but on occasion there there is a legal dispute, and it's kind of nice to suddenly sound like I know what I'm talking about. That scares people off a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to know that because it's always interesting to meet people who initially started out in a different industry and then wondering. I'm, I'm always curious about whether they use that uh, background or not in, in their photography. So yeah, that's cool that you're able to use it in some ways. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that the experience was a complete and total waste of eight years. Uh, I think it in many ways prepared me to run my own business. Um, would I have rather had eight more years as a professional photographer? Absolutely. Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. But again, you have that confidence when you work with uh, when you talk to park rangers, as you said, so it's worth it. It was worth it. It usually just gets me into more trouble. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because people in authority don't like it when you confront them. Right. So <laughs> a- absolutely. Especially when they're wrong and you point it out. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then it gets worse for you, not for them. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting story. Okay, and my last question for you is, what is the one thing you'd like to achieve in this great big photography world? Happiness, joy, passion. I mean, I think that's easy. That, that's why I do this. And that's why I think most of us do this is we want to be happy doing what we do. And, and so that is my ultimate goal. There's a lot of different places I want to go and visit and travel. I could give you a laundry list of places that I want to visit before, uh, before I can't travel anymore. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter where I am. I find as long as I'm taking pictures uh, and as long as I'm, I'm finding a way to be creative, that I'm happy. And that's all that I care about. That's a really good answer. And that's ultimately what everybody wants, especially people who already have found their calling. They just want to to be happy and to continue with what they love. And yeah, it's a really wholesome answer. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. I learned so much from you. And thank you for sharing your uh, insight stories with the, the listeners and your funny stories with the listeners. I had a lot of fun discussing everything with you. And I hope that you continue to take incredible pictures and find joy in what you do. Thank you. And I had a great time. Thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. I'd love to come back sometime and share some more crazy stories. Please, let's plan something in a few months and you, you can come back and then uh, hopefully the pandemic is over and you've traveled some more and we can talk more about your interesting stories. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great Big Photography World wouldn't be what it is without our incredible listeners. We're grateful for the time you take to listen to other photographers' stories and share your feedback with us. If you'd like to help us keep this podcast running smoothly, you can become a member on our website. In return for your help, we'll provide you with all kinds of exciting perks. Go to greatbigphotographyworld.com. There's a link to it in the show notes. I had so much fun talking to Ian about his incredible work. I hope that his story resonated with you somehow and inspired you to be even more grateful for your wonderful photography passion. 
See you next week. There's a simple reason why photographycourse.net is the highest rated photography community in the world. It's because the people who use it made it that way. Why not join us right now? Improve your skills, get exposure, and discover an exciting new world of photography. While you're at it, claim your special discount code by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member.